Well, good morning. It's good to see you guys this morning. We are going to be jumping through a few different places today, and you'll notice we're changing up a little bit of our order. And uh, we're going to celebrate communion together here in just a little bit. So a few of our, uh, our latecomers will be wondering what in the world's going on here in a few minutes. But uh, uh, if you're our guest, we're glad that you're here. I always question, we've done different versions of that video, and I always wonder if anyone will walk up and leave in the middle of that video thinking, what kind of church is this? But uh, it fits a lot with what we're doing this morning, and I'll share more of that with you in just um, a little bit. We're going to start in John chapter 12, if you want to jump over there. And last week, if you were with us, it was a hard week probably to be in here. I, this week is not going to be any easier. Uh, last week, we talked about loving our enemies. For the love has been all about what does it look like to not only follow Jesus, but to love like Jesus, and to understand that God is love, and so how are we to mimic Him in this regard? So uh, today, I'm going to talk to you about what does it look like, right? If you're in Kidmo, you can head on out. Thank you. You can get out of here. They are getting out as quick as they can. Don't get stuck. Don't get stuck. And um, so we're going to be talking about what does it look like to deny ourselves and what does it look like to die to ourselves. Aren't you glad you got up and came in this morning? Uh, yesterday we had the opportunity, my family and I, for my birthday, one of the things I wanted to do was go up and visit the Ark Encounter. How many of you guys have been there? Has anybody been to the Ark Encounter? It's really a pretty incredible place Emma has, because she went yesterday and Jake, because they went with me. We're it. So if you have any questions, come ask us, because none of you have been. Clearly don't love Jesus if you've not been, um, and don't believe the Bible is true. No, I'm just kidding. But, uh, so I wanted to go up there, and if you've not been, it's up um, right outside of Lexington, Kentucky, and it's, they have recreated what they believe to be what the ark would have looked like um, to exact scale. And it is unbelievable. As you walk up to it, it's just like, whoa, it is the largest uh, timber construction building in the world. And uh, they do take a lot of creative license because, you know, Scripture doesn't give us a whole lot of detail other than the size of it. But it really is an amazing thing, and one of the things I really enjoyed about it was just this representation of God's work from creation through Christ, and that we have the opportunity to know Christ, that God created us to be in a world that was perfect and without pain, without hardship, and in fact, Scripture goes so far as to tell us that you know whenever they would farm, because they had to eat and they would till the ground, there were no weeds. I go out in my yard, and I long for the days of the Garden of Eden, right? Because that's not the case in my yard. Uh, so one of the, the joys of my spring is if I can put down something to kill weeds, and I just watch them shrivel up. And I just, you know, I don't put anybody's faces on those weeds, you know, but I do enjoy watching them shrivel up. Uh, I'm, I'm troubled. I'm a troubled person. But what I did enjoy, and what, what I, a reason I bring this up to you, it's because it talked about the change from that perfect, pristine experience in the garden to the invitation of corruption and sin that visited upon us a curse. And that curse is something that all of humanity would struggle through until Christ comes back again and creates a new heaven and a new earth, or you and I die and we get to uh, go to heaven. That curse is something that affects us in so many different ways. Last week we talked about the reality that when we look at others, even our enemies, no matter what our enemies or who they are, 
Whenever we look at them, we fail to see all of those influential factors that brought them to the point of of them being who they are. And so when we look at somebody and they've hurt us or we, they anger us and we looked at some, some you know, big picture people in the world that we would say is probably our enemy and we narrowed down to a little closer to home where our personal enemies may lie, the, the reality is, is that we struggle to love our enemies because we are trying to live a life with as much love and affirmation and acceptance from those around us as possible. So as we struggle to love our enemies, whenever we truly do understand that we were once God's enemy and his love came to us in the way, in the form of Christ dying on the cross, that we would no longer be his enemy, it gives us the ability to give others grace even when they themselves have not done anything to earn it because we did not earn it. And so what I want to share with you today is how do we move even outside of that relationship? Because ultimately, if, if you can love your enemies, you can love anybody. And that is what Christ wants, is that we will be known for our love. But we are in a culture that has a very different definition of loving than God does. And you are constantly bombarded with images of what it looks like to love somebody, and that does not always square with Scripture. And in fact, if you get your definition of love from TV or the big screen or Facebook or any other social media platform, you probably have a very messed up view of what love is. As we go through this, I want you to keep in mind that what Jesus is inviting us to is not simply for us to recognize our sin, but He's inviting us to look at the world differently, to interact in the world differently. And while that may cost us something, in the end, we gain so much more. So as we go into this, and I want to begin in, uh, with praying with you, I want you to be thinking about how do you love when loving is difficult? How do you love when the object of your love doesn't reciprocate, or whenever the person that you're trying to love repulses you, maybe they're not your enemy, but you just can't stand them, they, they bug you to death, or Maybe someone who's hurt you, and you're constantly reminded of that hurt when you see them. When someone hates you, or people can't stand to be around you, or you can't stand to be around them. How do we, how do we love? How do we give that gift of love to somebody when we're exhausted, when we're ready to quit, when we feel like there's no benefit, and they're receiving all of the, the great opportunities because of your love, but yet you are receiving nothing. You're just giving away. How do we do that? How do we live that way and follow Christ? Let's pray together. Father, God, as we go through your word and as we struggle to understand what your calling in our lives means, I pray that you would show us today and that we would be able to, to worship you, not just in song, but in communion and reminding us that you gave so much for us. I pray for those in the room that are are trying to follow through in your commandments and in your instructions and to love like you do, but on those days that it's hard and those days that it feels empty and you just want to quit and give up, I pray that they would find peace and wholeness in seeing and in loving in this world the way you do. I thank, thank you for the love that we have, that we can gather in this place, and while we were your enemies, you loved us, you gave your life for us, and you have called us to be your family, your brothers and sisters. And so, Father, help us to live in that today. Help us to understand your word as we unpack it together. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen. As we look at Jesus in our world, to follow Jesus in some circles simply means you need to believe the right things. You need to say the right things, do the right things, read the right Bible. You need to go to the right church, and you need to go the right number of times to church. And for some, that's more than others. And, but in our world, what we see, by and large, is a church that is somewhat disintegrating. Attendance across the board, and every type of church is down. When we talk to people that, you know, where does your faith lie? The number of people that say, I don't have faith, or I don't believe that God exists, is growing at an exponential rate. And even within this nation that has been supposedly the, the bastion of the Christian movement in the world, there is a race for people to say, I do not believe anymore. And sometimes we look at lives, and I I think about those that we've invested in and, and you've invested in and you think about those people that their life is just a mess and you're trying to help and you just encourage and you teach and you show them better ways and you, you go through the muck and mire with them and nothing changes and you just think, why is nothing changing? And we read in Scripture about the miracles of Christ and we see all the incredible things that He does in people's lives and we just wonder, where is that today? And why aren't we experiencing this? I think overall there's a great dissatisfaction in the church and i think one of the reasons is because we have misunderstood what it means to follow christ and it doesn't mean that you need to try harder this is one of the key aspects in the way that we do church is it's not about trying harder because every time we come to that place of saying you just need to try harder then we somehow subconsciously are actually saying if i am good enough God will bless me with something. And Scripture says, well, that will never happen. You'll never be good enough. If God chooses to bless you, it's because of His love and His mercy and His grace. And what we're going to find is it's also the way that we approach Him. Jesus challenges us to go to extreme measures to truly know Him. And so I'm going to share some of those extreme measures with you. And I hope you'll hang on for the ride and we don't have a mass exodus this morning, I don't think we will, but I want you to know that Jesus is offering this challenge to you and to me, and it is up to us to whether or not we will accept it. We're going to begin in John chapter 12, verse 20. And there were a group of Greeks that were around looking for Jesus. They were curious. They've heard about him. Jesus is making a name for himself. And so they come up and they're like, we got to see this. We got to hear this. We got to know what's happening here. It says, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So These came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, we're reaching at this point, we're towards the end of the ministry of Jesus, and so he's getting more and more focused on sharing the end goal here, and that is that he is going to die. 
Now, his disciples are not real keen on this idea, and they try to talk him out of it, and, and they all sometimes go so far as to say, well, listen, we're going to die with you, to which Jesus says, oh, no, 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 this is not your burden to bear. One of our favorite passages of Scripture when we read about Peter, and Peter says, oh, I will go with you, and Jesus says, oh, no, you will deny me three times, and the reason that's one of our favorite ones is because we see ourselves in that, don't we? I mean, we see ourselves as Peter so many times where we just wish and we say we're going to and we commit to doing something, but then yet we just seem to fall short. And so as these Greeks come up and they're curious and they're asking questions, I, I think it's interesting what Jesus says and how he responds to them. He says, number one, as we, when we go back to verse 24, he says, the grain of wheat must die. And yet, if the grain of wheat dies, what's going to happen? Oh, you've got to look. I hurriedly look. What did it say? It's, it's going to bear fruit. The grain of wheat has to die in order for fruit to be born. And what Jesus is saying is that this is his mission. This is what he's going to do. The time has come that he has to die. If he doesn't die, then the fruit won't come. And so even in his own life, he, he has to come to the place where he must die. The second thing he says is that he calls us to hate our lives in this world, which I'll be honest, I, I really don't like these types, types of scriptures. I read that and I think, are we just supposed to walk around and, and just hate ourselves? It, isn't that a fun thing? Hey, listen, I want you to come to church with me. I, I've never met another group of people that hate themselves more. It's really a wonderful place. You'll love it. Come on. It's great. We'll hate each other. And if you don't already hate yourself, we will teach you how. For some of you, it's all too personal because, let's be honest, deep down inside, there is a little piece of you that hates yourself. And you're like, oh, I can do this. I can hate myself because I already do. If you're one of those that constantly doubts everything that you do and you've never done it good enough and you're constantly struggling to be better and you just feel like you're a disappointment to everybody, including yourself, then you grasp this. But this is not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying you've got to hate yourself in the sense that we constantly walk around and we try to share the glory of God by looking down and dejected. What does he mean? He says literally, he who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world gains it. It's like a riddle that just demands a search for the answer. Because these are not typically things we will seek after. I didn't come into the world thinking, you know what? I cannot wait to die. <laughs> That's going to be so great. I've never done that. You've probably, I hope, never done that. But yes, something in what Jesus is saying is trying to turn on their ear, similar to the video we just watched, saying the way that you view the world is completely upside down. And so that if your life is focused on you gaining your life and getting as much out of life as possible, you're going to lose it. If you love your life because you have worked hard to get where you are and to structure it in a way that it just is perfect for the way you've always wanted it to be, you're going to lose it. But if you'll give up your life and if you will hate your life in this world, which is a crucial identifier, then you will gain eternal life. If you're still confused, don't worry. I'm going to confuse you for the next 30 minutes. 
as we continue to walk through this in some other places where Jesus says something similar. Third thing he says is Jesus calls to follow us to follow him to death just as he is on a journey towards death. And the fourth thing he says in this response to these Greeks who were coming and wanting to see him, it says Jesus calls us to serve him. And if we serve him, God will honor those who are serving him. As we go through these things, the truth is, is we, we cannot truly see Jesus unless we are willing to lose our lives, to hate our lives, and then are willing to serve and follow Jesus. Now, I know that's a confusing concept, and that goes against everything that you innately, naturally believe about life. That's why I bring up the Ark Encounter. One of the things that it just reminded me of was how different our lives are today because sin has entered it. The curse that we live under that Jesus had to die to break for us. And yet we still live in that broken world. We still live in a place where we are, we are at odds with people, that we're constantly at conflict. We have people that we like and we don't like, people that like us and don't like us. And we're constantly trying to, to work our way out. We look at ourselves and we always compare with other people. We look at what other people have and we think, well, why don't I have that? Somebody gets a new car and I think, man, I want that. Why don't I have that? Somebody gets a new house. Well, I want, I want, why don't I have that? We look at our coworkers and we think, oh my gosh, they... They just, everything works out for them and nothing works out for me. I can't stand that. And then, unless you're living your dream and your career and everything, you eventually reach a point in your life and you look back and say, is this what I really wanted? And then you begin counting all of your regrets. And I tell you, there's not a sadder person out there than someone who is constantly living in their regrets. And so we look at this and we say, Jesus, what do you mean that I'm supposed to, to you know, lose my life and hate my life? And on and on and on. And I think one of the problems and the reasons we struggle to understand this 2,000 years later is, is one of the ways that we present the gospel today is not the whole gospel. Now, I have to be very careful how I say this because we are very much a, a church focused on grace, but it, when we portray the gospel as just grace and that's it, boy, that's just a piece of the gospel. But it's a great way to give the gospel to somebody who doesn't want to hear it. It's just all grace. You know, it's just all a gift. And the problem is when someone accepts that gospel solely on grace, oh, I believe, I'm saved, now I'll just hang out until Jesus comes or I die, go do what I want. They find themselves frustrated and empty and they begin asking the questions, why don't I hear God? Why don't I see God? Why do I look in the lives of these people who say they're Christians and I don't see that they're any different than anyone else in the world? Why would I want to follow Jesus if I'm going to be the exact same person? I do not deny grace. Scripture tells us over and over and over again that we are saved by grace. And it is, it is a cornerstone of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that we are given this not of our own works, but it is a gift from God. However, when we only focus on grace, we miss all the other aspects of God and what His call is for our lives. 
And these pesky, uncomfortable topics come up, like holiness. Holiness is an Old Testament thing. I'm under grace. We talk about justice. Well, I like justice for the issues that I think are important to me, but I don't know that I want to think about God judging me and being my judge. It's a struggle for us to go through and understand in a world that is telling us you just need to have less expectations for others. You just need to, to just let God, you know, give you a gift of grace and then go about your day. You, that's the way that you need to live your life. But that is not the way Jesus says that you experience him. And if we're not experiencing Jesus, why are we doing any of this, right? We had all kinds of other things we could do. My parents went with us yesterday. We had a lot of fun with them. They stayed an extra night. He texted me, Dad texted me this morning. We're backsliding today, which means they're sleeping in. I was like, oh, man. I wouldn't mind to be backsliding today, too. Amen? Yeah. I'm not supposed to say that. Pastors don't say that because pastors live at the church. That's what I used to think. You know, they would just pull me out of, you pull the pastor out of the closet whenever it was time for some duty. And then he just kind of lived there because he loved the church so much. I'm going to tell you, I woke up this morning thinking I could be backsliding this morning, right? It's a pretty day. I don't think I was alone. And we look at this. We look at what Jesus is calling them to, and it brings us to a place where we have to ask ourselves, am I truly seeing Jesus? Am I truly seeing the world as he does? And am I truly answering the call in which he has given us? And when we focus only on grace, it's easy to say, you know what, I believe God is real and Jesus died for my sins and, and, and I can go to heaven one day. That's easy. That doesn't cost you anything. And yet what Jesus is saying for those that want to see him is, you've got to die to yourself. You've got to hate your life in this world. And when we look at those, there is actually a stream of people that say, well, Jesus, Jesus was actually still talking in the Old Testament because he hadn't died yet. And I think, well, are you, what are you smoking? That is, how can you possibly say that? And yet there is a whole stream of theology out there that says, you know what, you need to ignore all of Jesus' teachings because it was pre-crucifixion. I think, well, who do you think was being crucified? That's the world you and I live in. See, the reason people are walking away from faith today is not because God is not capable or able. It is not that God is not real or that Jesus is not still performing miracles in the lives of people. It's because we have made it so easy to follow him with no conviction and no commitment that we miss the beauty in him. So may we never remove the gift of grace. May we never stop talking about grace. But yet, when that's all we do, then we miss some of Jesus' most powerful teachings in the way that we see him, walk with him, and the way our whole worldview changes. Again, remember the curse. See, before Jesus changes the way we see the world, we only see it through the curse. That's all we can see. That's why there are so many people that argue with you over your faith or say, I don't believe what you believe or I don't think that God is real. That's why they say it, because they have no other way to see it. And if it weren't by the grace of God, the Holy Spirit wouldn't have intersected them to say, no, you need to see the world differently. 
And so as we go on and we look at this, it's no wonder that Christians are feeling hopeless and purposeless without any direction. The truth is God hasn't changed, but the way that we in the church sometimes approach Him has. So now what should we do? Matthew 16, he talks about this in a different way. He says, and this is again one of the ones that I really hate reading, and I, I just it's not fun to bring up, but it's, it's here. Jesus is talking to his disciples. Verse 24 says, Jesus told his disciples, if, if anyone would come after me, <laughs> let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lo- excuse me, lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What? For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Which he is setting up here a way for us to view the world differently and that most of us grow up trying to gain the whole world. I did. Maybe some of you didn't, but I did. I, I wanted to gain the whole world. And for me, gaining the whole world meant pleasure, comfort, lots and lots and lots of money. <laughs> I wanted people to look at me as successful, and I wanted people to say, Mark has got it together. A lot more than me. I want to be like Mark. That is what it looks like for us to gain the whole world. And God said, okay, let me just mess up your plan. And when we sometimes look at those messed up plans, we think, God, how could you do this to me? Or Once we begin to understand his call to dine to ourselves, we begin to see what a gift of grace that was. That he kept me from pursuing the dream of gaining the whole world. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. That's what Jesus said. I read this and I go, what are you talking about? So what does it mean to take up your cross and die to yourself? That's where I want to spend the rest of our time this morning. And if I, if I do it well, you will leave out of here more positive than negative. If I don't do it well, you'll walk out of here depressed and just grab some more coffee and stuff on your way out, pick you back up. As we go through this and we look at this, we have to understand what does it mean by dying. And I didn't, I didn't coin this phrase, but I completely stole it because it's great. Dying, the definition literally is the absence of living, right? Dying is the absence of living. Now, we can use dying in lots of different ways. We're dying at work. We're dying at home. We're dying to do this. We're dying to do that. I mean, you know, we're just something ceases that we really want to happen. So dying is the absence of living. So if dying is the absence of living, then when we die to ourselves, we are choosing another reason to live than for ourselves. It's not that we walk around like zombies and go, oh boy, I'm just terrible. Man, you're spiritual. No one has ever thought that. I won't say never. There are some people that have so embraced the idea that you need to think so poorly of yourself and that's what it looks like to glorify God that the more downcast you can be, the more depressed you can be, the more you can admit all of your faults and weaknesses, people will think, man, you're just so spiritual. Spiritual, but that is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying that you need to be the most miserable people in the world to glorify me, because that seems more like what the enemy wants, right? 
When we die to ourselves, we're choosing to live for another reason other than living for ourselves. And so when we get to this place and we're able to do this, when we die to ourselves, what we're literally doing is we are creating the space to live for something or someone else. But yet living for myself, that is a selfish goal that I can hardly think of anything else when I'm focused on that. And neither can you. So dying to ourselves isn't so much about being miserable and hurting ourselves and wishing we weren't born. Instead, it is creating the space to live for something better that we never would have if we kept our focus on ourselves. And what Jesus is inviting those Greeks and what he's inviting his disciples to is to say, if you will create the space to see the world differently, you will receive something that no one else in the world does. And I don't know about you, but when I read these things, I think, oh, yes, that is what I want. I'm not sure I can live up to this, though. I'm not sure I can really die to myself because I have some really invested (laughs) self-interest. I have some things I really want to see happen in my life. I have some goals that I really want to see happen in my life. And I'm just, I'm not sure that if I let go of those, that those will happen. And they're really important to me. Some of the things that I think happens when you die to yourself, instead of just thinking how terrible a person you are. That is, that is not even repentance, by the way. You know, repentance is the message of the gospel. In fact, all of the disciples and Jesus and John the Baptist as they began talking about the gospel, it always started with repentance. It didn't start with grace. Grace was something that we in this century or the previous century, we truly held on to that because we found that it was easier to get people to uh, you know, commit to being a Christian if we made it easy. That's worked out really well for us, hasn't it? And instead, Jesus is saying, you, you know, you've got to give up everything. Now, if you've been with us on this journey for a while, then you'll know we've been talking a lot about the Holy Spirit and everything that you have in an opportunity to know Christ is because of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the one that convicts you and leads you to repentance, which is necessary in order to know Christ is to come to this place of repentance. But repentance is not just that we feel bad about things. Instead, repentance is when we commit to changing the way that we live. And when we cry out to Christ in in repentance, it's not that we're saying, oh, Jesus, I'm so bad, I'm so terrible, I just, oh, I'm so awful. That's not what he's asking for. That may be a natural consequence of being faced with your sin for the first time, but that's not what he's asking for. He's asking for a turn, and his glory comes whenever you turn and receive him, and your life is changed, and our joy and our worship is for him and not for ourselves. Which I don't know about you, I am not a good, consistent person to, to look at for what it looks like to worship. If, if, if I'm worshiping myself, my idea of worship changes like on a daily basis, right? What makes me happy can change on a daily basis. But whenever we fix our eyes on him and we come to this place of recognizing, oh, I am a wretched sinner, but you have died for me, then we receive joy and hope and purpose and the ability to love because we fully experienced his love in us. And so when we begin to say, I'm willing 
to die. I, I, I hate my life, not that I hate myself, but I hate the whole view of the world that I had before I knew Christ. I hate the way I was living just for myself rather than for someone else. Whenever you die to yourself, your identity, your, your literal identity is replaced with something else. The value and worth that you hold in yourself is no longer based on whatever your comparison is with other people. Your value and your worth comes by what you see from God. What he says your value and worth is, which is that, that which is worth him dying on the cross for. Whenever we die to ourselves, our attention shifts. And, it, and it's not that we don't ever think of ourselves. You've got to think of yourself at some point, right? Or you stop eating, you, you stop living. And, but our focus and our purpose, is, it moves to something else. When we die to ourselves, our hopes are not something that we come up on our own. Our hopes are inherited by our Father who is in heaven. And so our hopes are changed for His hopes, which is why Scripture says, God will give you the desires of your heart. I love that verse. It just hasn't worked out that way for me so far, right? I know what my desires are. But what that psalmist is saying is, when you begin to see Jesus as he is, when you understand God's hope and God's purpose for your life, when you begin to see the world through the eyes Without the curse, your desires change to his desires, and those desires come true. And this is one of the frustrating things about following Christ in the age that you and I live in, and it has been really for the last 2,000 years. The frustrating thing is we read this and we wonder, why is God not blessing me? And I would say for some of us, it's because our desires are still the old desires. And we're asking God to do something that he says is not really all that great. And we're missing the things that he says is full life, wholeness. So when we die, our hopes change and we inherit those from God, not ourselves. Jesus said over and over and over again, hey, what are you here for, Jesus? I'm here to do the will of my Father. I mean, over and over and over again. What are you here for, Jesus? I'm here to do the will of my Father. and I'm not here to do my own will. I'm not here to be served. I'm here to serve, you know? He just constantly throws all of everyone's expectations and questions on their ear and says it's completely different than what you think. And if you're trudging through your faith and you're thinking, gosh, I'm trying to read more Scripture, I'm trying to pray more, I'm trying to come to church more, and I'm trying to serve more, and I just feel empty inside, maybe you're trying to force something that you were never supposed to force. See, that's the challenge, and, and as a pastor, that's one of the challenges I have. I, I look out and I think, gosh, you need to read your Bible more. But if you read your Bible more because I've told you to read your Bible more, it's probably going to be empty. But if you say, oh, this is the living Word of God and He is speaking to me and He wants to open up these unknown realities to me that I never would have come to on my own, so I must be in God's Word, that changes your life. And if I say, oh, you know what? If you're going to be a good Christian, you've got to come to church every Sunday. And now you start coming every Sunday. You're thinking, oh, I feel empty. I mean, I'm coming, but I just don't really want to be here. And if you come because I say you're supposed to be here, it doesn't have the same purpose as I just need to be with my brothers and sisters in Christ. 
I need to be with them. I need, I, I need to be challenged with God's Word. I need to worship together. Then being apart every week is different. It means something. If I say, oh, you've got to be in a small group. I mean, you can't grow if you're not in a small group. And you go to a small group because I said you're supposed to be there. Then you'll go. And then you'll stop going. Because you'll find it costs you something to do that. And the value of the small group is not in just the fact that you set aside that calendar time. But it's the fact that you are intentionally trying to grow with a group of people that you are meshing your life with. Now that's something different. So these challenges that he's giving us, it goes so far beyond. You just got to try harder. Instead, he's saying, I need, I need you to revolutionize the way you see life. I need you to open your eyes to what is bigger and grander and broader and more wonderful and more full of joy and purpose and hope. But if your eyes are focused on your own self and your own hopes and desires, you'll never see the bigger picture and you'll always wonder why. That's why Jesus didn't sit these Greeks down and say, okay, now I want you to sit down and you all kind of share your life with me. Let me tell you all the things that you need to die to if you want to really understand this. He doesn't do that because he knows it's not about a formula. It's about a change of the heart. Whenever we die to ourselves, one of the things that I have seen happen over and over is that our spiritual strengths begin to get stronger and take over. And the strengths that we've banked on all our lives, our good looks, our health, our smarts, some of us have more of those than others, you know. I really don't want to know what you think I have and don't have, but my kids remind me. But our spiritual strengths take over. Gosh, some of the people that I've come across in my life who are just have the deepest faith and boy they could just they could walk you through scripture better than any theologian never had a a finished a high school education it's because their strength was not in their education their strength was in their heart and their spirit and their ability to see and hear what god is doing they were driven to study god's word even though they didn't have any kind of advanced degree or education it's amazing when you look at someone who has faith and everything in their life may be going wrong and you look at them and think, oh, I would not want to be them and yet their faith is so strong you can't help but think, oh, I just feel like they have something I don't have. It's just amazing. Another thing that happens when you do this and this is really where the rubber meets the road and this is why I'm sharing this with you whenever we die to ourselves, whenever we hate our life in this world, that is the moment you begin to stop manifesting your own life and you begin manifesting the life of Christ in your, in your life. He says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Oh, that is a key understanding. That that power belongs to God and not to us. I so much want to believe I have power within me. 
Our whole religious system's built around this. I just so want to, because if I have it in me, I don't have to rely on anybody else, and I can use it for whatever I want. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. And in that is the understanding of why do I hate my life? Because I want Jesus' life to be manifested in me, not Mark's life. Did you see there's, there's something different about just the gospel of grace? It doesn't remove nor ignore grace because all of this is possible because of grace. But it changes the way we see his calling to us as his followers. You may be thinking, well, gosh, I don't know that I'm up for this. Well, join the club. <laughs> Me either. Me either. But here's what I know by reading through these different passages of Scripture that we experience the life that only Jesus can bring only when we die to ourselves. In other words, there's something better waiting, but we got to crucify our own selves first. And if you think, oh, Mark, no, wait a minute. That's weird theology because only Jesus was supposed to be crucified. But you, you realize this is one of the reasons we're waiting to do communion until after today because that's what communion is to remind us of. We are crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live but Christ who lives in me. You know, that's why we have, there are two primary ordinances, what we call them, traditions that we do in the church. Both of them are about this very topic. One is communion. Jesus, when he had the Last Supper, this, it began as the Passover meal. If you remember Passover from way back in Exodus and God was going to deliver the Hebrews out of the Egyptians' hands. And he said, finally, after all of the plagues, he finally said, you know what? I'm done. The last one. I want you to take a lamb and I want you to kill it and I want you to spread its blood over your doorposts. And the angel of death is going to circulate all throughout Egypt. And any house that does not have that blood on the doorpost, then their firstborn is going to be killed. And there was a great cry like had never been heard. And yet all those who had the blood on their doorposts, the angel passed over, which is where we get the name Passover. And they celebrated that each year. And Jesus celebrated that with his disciples. Each year they were with him and, until the last one when the Passover became the Lord's Supper. That's what we call it, or communion. And he told them to continue this but I want you to change the understanding. It's not about getting released from Pharaoh. It's about getting released from sin. And so he said, instead of the lamb who was, blood was shed to put over the doorpost, it's my blood. And so the, the juice that we use, some of your different traditions use something a lot more exciting than juice, but we use juice here. It symbolizes his blood. And he said, the bread, that is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
to remind us of our call to be crucified with Christ. The other one that we do is baptism. And in baptism, it's where we either do it here or, or this summer we're going to go back out to the lake. We're going to have another baptism at the lake. And we have some that are wanting to be baptized. If you are not been baptized yet, I want to talk to you. And we're going to dunk you in the lake. It's going to be awesome. It's very spiritual and a lot of fun. But baptism is literally likening our lives to Christ's death that when we go under the water, we are dying to ourselves and when we come out of the water, we are alive with Christ. Jesus had John the Baptist baptize him and he said in the Great Commission, go and continue this practice, which is why we do it. And it is the symbolism of our death to our old selves so that we can become alive to something so much better. But yet still within our hearts to feel that we are supposed to hate our life in this world feels just like a bad thing, like you you need to be on medication for that. But the truth is, it opens you up to something so much better. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. The truth is, and the reason I wanted to share this during this series, is that whenever we are truly able to experience life in this way, then we are also able to more fully love when we die to ourselves. Because loving costs something, doesn't it? I mean, if, you're, if, if you've ever been married, that's a, boy, that's a test. Now, if you've been married, and you've been married like a year or two, not fair. It's not a fair test yet. You've got to wait. You need some time. You need to let things ruminate, right? You need to have some good disagreements. I mean, some good disagreements along the way to realize that there are times that when I choose to love my spouse, that costs me something. And even though this is unspiritual to say, I really don't want to love her. She's made me really mad right? Love costs us something. See, the world says, love those people that love you. We talked about that last week. Because that's easy. I mean, I love when people come in and go, Mark, you are just so awesome. You know what? I love you. <laughs> Mark, I need to talk to you. Uh, you know, I, I got some issues with you. Um, okay, I don't have time for you. You need to you know, pray before you come talk to me again. But you over here, you love me, so I'm going to come hang out with you. Tell me more. That's the way the world defines love, and that's the way you should love, and those are the people you should love, those people that are easy to love, that give you something for your love so that your love itself does not cost you anything. And yet when we look at the gospel and we look at Jesus, we look at everything from the Old Testament to the New, we see that God is doing things that cost him greatly because of his love for us. And he is saying, I want you to mimic me in your everyday lives, going so far as to say this kind of love that costs you everything is how my disciples will be known in the world. Which begs a question that we're going to not try to answer today. We're going to try to answer in the coming weeks. Next week is Mother's Day. Kids, dads, you're welcome. Next week, next Sunday, you need to be on the ball. We're going to begin some little mini-series about how do we love in specific situations, and we're going to begin with parenting next week. That's going to be fun, isn't it? I know when I was a kid, I be- Jake's going to get his Mother's Day gift right now. Just kidding, Jake. He's like, I am not going to forget this. <laughs> Just kidding. Oh, that's terrible. I shouldn't do that, should I? That's terrible. Um, 
<laughs> but if that's what you need to do, that's what you need to do, all right? But it costs you something to love that way. When I was a kid, I, I, wanted my, I wanted things to cost my parents a lot to give to me. When I became a parent, I was like, oh, wow, it's, she's on the other foot now. Remember, we love, it costs us something. We have to be committed to that, and we begin to love the way that Jesus loved. That means we've got to love the people that don't ever give anything back in return. That means when we go sit with that person that no one else will sit with, it's costing us something. Maybe some social capital with our peer group. It's costing us something, and yet we do it anyways because that's what Jesus would have done. Maybe it's when we look at somebody at work and everybody hates them. Maybe they've made some mistakes and we think, you know what, they deserve it. That means we go and we show them love because that's what Jesus would have done. And it will cost you something. And in the scenario and in the economy that you and I live in, anything that costs you something is bad because there's not enough to go around. But in God's economy, he says, you just give freely and liberally and let me take care of writing the check. Let me do that. And when you begin to live in that kind of way, you stop thinking in terms of, it's going to cost me something. Instead, you start thinking in terms of, oh God, we're doing this together. You're filling me up. And that's another thing that Jesus has called us to, be filled up. Because just as him, as he was, we are going to be poured out. But God never said, I'm going to pour you out and then you're just going to have nothing. God's the God who has more than we could ever need. We love more fully when we die to ourselves because when we die to ourselves, we stop looking at others based on what they can give us. 1 Corinthians 13 says, if I can speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. All those things. It's not about trying harder. It's just not. I mean, the trying comes in the midst of being empowered by God. It's not about, i got to do this for God to be pleased with me. That's not how it works. God is pleased with you because He loves you. Love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, it believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. You know, He's... Paul is saying it love endures all things. Is that a positive sounding thing? Like I've got to endure this? But love endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they'll cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly lit, but then face to face, now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And then verse 13, so now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. We can't fully love until we're 
ready to die to ourselves. You cannot truly live for the love unless you are willing to give up your life to fully walk with Jesus. And, and again, this is what it says will happen when you do that and you begin to love like Christ does. It means you will be patient. I've got, I've got work to do on this. <laughs> but if, if I'm honest and, and if we're true to what we're talking about this morning, I've got to let God do that in me. Also, whenever you die to yourself and you live and let Christ be manifested in you, it's going to look like kindness, humility, love that doesn't require boasting, it doesn't envy, it's not arrogant, it's not rude. It's a self-effacing love that does not require us to be the center of attention or have to have everything done our way. You're not irritable or resentful. My kids would probably say that I don't necessarily exhibit the best of not being you know, irritable at times. Doesn't rejoice when others fall. Rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And this kind of love never ends. Never, in all of eternity, never ends. What if you were on the receiving end of this kind of love? What if you were surrounded by people that loved you these ways? What if when you walked in the door, you saw somebody who just said, Oh, I'm just so glad to see you and they meant it we all have those relationships and sometimes we are the ones in those we are the ones that have a tendency to steer all conversations about ourselves but yet we don't always notice it but we eventually do when we see somebody that's truly interested in us and they just want to talk to us about us we don't always notice it but then when you do it's so such a breath of fresh air How would this kind of love change your friendships, your marriage, your relationships with estranged family members? What about your coworkers or your neighbors? What about the people you can't stand? What about the people that you think are wrong? What about the Christians who are being terrible examples? What about the people that are just bashing Christianity all the time? What if we loved them like this? Pew Research Center says and estimates there's somewhere around 2.3 billion professing Christians in the world. 2.3 billion professing Christians in the world. Roughly a third of the population of the world. What if a third of the population in the world loved like this? What would happen in the world? Those same statistical groups tell us that in the next few decades, Islam will surpass Christianity in the number of converts in the world. It's growing at a fast rate, whereas Christianity is in decline. What if a third of the world loved like Jesus did? We can't simply learn to love more like Jesus. We have to give up everything we think we know to experience a life God always wanted for us. And I know this costs you something, and I know this feels difficult and it hurts. But this is what he's saying when you die to yourself. God doesn't want us going around just saying, oh, I'm such a terrible person. That is not what Jesus died for. God wants us to experience life that is fuller and greater than we have ever experienced before. We're gonna, the worship team's going to come back out. We're going to sing a couple of songs. 
And in these last two songs, uh, I want you to be able to come up and, and take communion. And uh, if you've not been here with us before, we've taken communion. You, it's, it's just come as, as, you, as you will, come as you are. Um, just take a piece of bread, dip it in the juice, and you can do that right where you are. And uh, if you need to pray, if you need to seek God, if you, if you want to experience Him in this way, that you're ready to let your old way of viewing the life go away, now is the time to do it. Don't wait. If you want to kneel and pray, you can pray. If you need to go to somebody and ask forgiveness, listen, one of the things we receive when we love like this and we die to ourselves is it, it is so much easier to forgive others. It's so much easier to be generous to others. It's so much easier to show grace to others because we aren't caught up in what it's costing us. We're just giving away what Jesus has given us. It's a wonderful thing, and I invite you to live that life with us. Some of you are thinking, well, I'm just not very good at it, and I would just echo that. I'm not either, and I'm supposed to be really good at it. This is one of the beauties of God's love, is that he allows us to grow and to mature. And one of the very first steps we have to take is we have to recognize our need to do that. And when we recognize it and when we commit to him, then we begin to change and Boy, I just believe that heaven applauds as we grow and mature. You don't have to be perfect now, and if you're not perfect now, then that doesn't mean that God's disappointed in you. It's one of the reasons we name this place Journey. I'm always asked, is, are you affiliated with other Journey churches? Well, yes and no. Yes, we're all the body of Christ. No, we're not like organizationally affiliated with anybody, but we call this place Journey because that's what it is. It's not a destination. It's a journey. And so wherever you are on that, I hope that you will follow with us and commit to living this out. Would you pray with me? Father, God, thank you for your love and the gift of your Son. And Lord, I pray that you would help each one of us to experience this new life in you in such a way that we are willing to give up our lives as we have known them. As we take communion together, let us be reminded that we are giving up our lives to gain something better. Let us be reminded that we're hating our lives because you created us for something better. And then let us walk fully in your love and the ability to share that with others. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.